a science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they I felt, felt right. I was so and I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everyone, welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true, personal stories about science. I'm your host, Erin Barker, and this week's episode is about near-death experiences. The science of danger and the science of recovery and everything in between. Buckle up, friends, you're in for some wild rides in today's episode. Our first story is from Abraham Norfleet. It was recorded at one of our live stream shows in November 2021 at the Tank here in New York City. The theme that night was fight or flight. So um, I grew up in a small town in Northern California called Philo. And I say small town and you all think you know what a small town is. No, think smaller. Um, in the 1970 census, they counted 93 people there. And uh, we moved there shortly after that, so it was a little in-joke in our house that now there were 98 people. But we were the only ones that knew that. Uh, and we kept that as a joke only in our house because the other 93 people in that town would not have liked that kind of joke. <laughs> um, they were real country people uh, there. It was a farming community. And uh, this was the beginning of the 1970s, but the attitudes in the moors of this uh, area were more like the 50s, uh, the 1850s. Um, and unbeknownst to me at the time, my parents, uh, my father especially, uh, they were not country people. They were city people. Uh, they were hippies. They'd met in Los Angeles. And, uh, and then my mom got pregnant with me, and I got born. And my father's was trying to start a coffee shop, and it was going bankrupt. Uh, I think because he found it distasteful to make a profit on the LSD. <laughs> um, and so he took the last of his money, and he bought an uh, old school bus, a short bus, and uh, ripped out all the benches and put in a, a playpen for the baby, me, and a wood stove with the uh, chimney going out the top. And they decided to set out and find some place to go back to the land. They wanted to be back to the land hippies, uh, like they read about in the Whole Earth Catalog. Uh, and they also decided to become born-again Christians. I'm not sure why. I suspect it was the LSD. So they set off from Los Angeles with this bus, and they went all the way across the country to Florida, and then all the way back across the country to California, and my dad crashed the bus right outside of Philo, so that's where I grew up. <laughs> so uh, water was a problem back then, uh, too. It's even worse now, but uh, the house we ended up in had a small cistern that, from a spring that was enough water for the household usage, but my father had this uh, fantasy of having a farm and being back to the land, uh, he wasn't really a farmer. He was actually a union carpenter is how he made his living. But he really wanted this farm. Uh, I think because that was the only way he could figure out how to utilize the free child labor he had. Um, so in order to get water for the farm, he, uh, there, was a, there was a cliff uh, out behind the, the, wood, the workshop and then the pig pen. And there was this 50-foot cliff down to a creek. So he, he ran a line down to the creek and put in a 220-volt submersible pump. And a black plastic hose went 50, up, 50 feet up the cliff to a big holding tank that just had a flotation switch on it. And that was the water that supplied all of our, our garden and the, the animals and all that. So um, when I was 10 years old, so fast forward 10 years, uh, 1979, 
It was late in the summer and I was chilling, doing something. And I heard my dad whistle. He had this crazy loud whistle he could do that I never learned. And I uh, yelled my name and I was like, oh no, really dread, you know, dreadful feeling in the pit of my stomach and hustled over there as quick as I could. I wasn't sure what, uh, what kind of a beating I was going to get. And he had a, uh, a scrub brush and he told me that he thought the irrigation pump was too clogged with algae to be efficient and he wanted me to go down and clean it off. And uh, for a second, I was kind of irked that it was a chore out of the blue. And then I was like, you know what? It's swimming in the creek. That's what I do for fun. So I'm just going to adjust my attitude and make this a good time. I took the scrub brush and uh, you couldn't go right down the cliff. You had to go about a quarter mile down the hill until the hill got down to the creek level and then hike back up upstream to where uh, the geology of the creek, where it met the cliff, and that's why the cliff was there. And it sort of formed this borehole in the winter when the, when the water was high and it made a a kind of a steep little pit right there. And that was why the irrigation pump was there. It was deep. The rest of the creek was like ankle deep at this time of year. So I get down there and I go in the water and it's up to about my waist and uh, only about two or three feet to the pump. But by then it'll be over my head and I'm looking at the algae on the pump and it's these really diaphanous streamers of algae. And I'm thinking, okay, I can do this. I can do this on one breath. Um, at the time I knew uh, I could hold my breath for a little over two minutes. And I knew this because the only high-tech tool I had was a stopwatch. And us kids were totally unsupervised all summer, and so we just had this contest all the time of who could stay underwater the longest. And that summer, I was the champion. Uh, I even beat an older kid. He was about 13. And uh, I learned from that uh, there's a certain type of country person where if a younger kid beats them, they become your enemy for life. <laughs> So uh, I set myself this goal of finishing the whole thing in one breath, hyperventilated for a little while, get the oxygen up, took a big breath, dove under. Uh, I found that I had to kind of hold on to the pump with one hand. Uh, and the, the intake of the pump was a stainless steel cylinder about two feet long, about as big around as a coffee can uh, with this little grill on it. And as soon as I started scrubbing it, uh, the, the algae looked very weak and soft, but it turned out to be really tough and hard to scrub off. And the uh, intake of the pump was keeping the algae matted up to it, even as it scrubbed off and it was fouling the scrub brush. And I had to keep kind of shaking the scrub brush out. And I got about halfway across and I had to switch hands. So I was doing it left-handed. And I was definitely starting to need air at this point. So I started letting a little air uh, trickle out my nose. That's a little way you can trick your brain into giving you a little more time. And uh, I was almost done. It was like just one little strip to go. And my chest was starting to heave a little bit uh, with that subconscious urge to take a breath. And I was like, okay, I didn't make it. I give up. Um, I got to get air. And I always had a cinematic imagination. So I imagined myself pushing off the bottom and blowing out my air while still underwater. And then the bubbles sort of breaking the surface and my face coming right up through the bubbles to get my breath of air. And so that's what I did. I blew out all my air and I pushed off and I reached up and I grabbed the pipe uh, that was coming off the top of the pump. And I also grabbed the 220 volt electrical line that my dad had made the connection with uh, twisting the wires together and wrapping them in electrical tape. So 220 volts, immediately clamped my hand down on the pipe. And uh, I was like, oh shit, let go, let go, let go. And I couldn't. Um, that much electricity puts every nerve and every muscle onto full clinch. So I was immediately in a position where um, whatever muscle group, the flexors were fighting the extensors, whichever one was strongest one. And I was just in the position of wherever the physical limit of that range of motion is. So I was arched over backwards, my head upside down. Uh, my eyes are open. I could feel the electricity like pouring into my hand, like a really strange feeling and down my arm to where it hit the water. And where the water was, it felt a, a ring of it flowing out into the water. 
but I could still feel a lot more of it still flowing all through the rest of me. I could feel it flowing out of my elbow underwater, out of my armpits. Uh, my other hand, I could feel it flowing out of my palm and my fingertips, out of my, uh, my groin, my knees, the bottoms of my feet. Um, I could feel that my heart was just clenched like a fist. Uh, I had a distinct feeling of not beating. Uh, it felt like it was buzzing, like um, the sound that a, a funky uh, fluorescent light makes, but uh, far more painful. Um, so I was like, well, kind of surprised my internal monologue at this point was calm. And it was just like, well, that's it. You can't let go, and <laughs> you're out of air already. And now your heart's not even beating, so you're dead. Uh, that's it. You're done. And I was like, OK. And I could see, I could see the, the rocks underwater. My head was upside down, so it was kind of I was looking up to the bottom of the creek, and I could see minnows swimming around, and I could see it's only about an inch or two of water in front of my eyes. I could see the, the shore, I could see the sand and the willow trees, and I could see a lot of bright blue sky, and I could see the sun. And I thought, well, this is taking a long time. Isn't my life supposed to flash before my eyes or something? And as soon as I thought that, uh, I saw that the sun was kind of shimmering, and I couldn't move to look at it, but it sort of became the focus of my attention. And the shimmery edge of it looked like there was something spinning around it in, in these concentric circles right around the sun and, and kind of coming closer. And they looked like little black buzz saws. And there were two sets of them and they were spinning in opposite directions, but missing each other each time they went around. And it looked like they were getting bigger or coming closer. And there, there were more and more of them coming off the sun. And as they got bigger, they looked like, uh, like a a bunch of paisleys smashed together, or maybe a starfish, maybe, um, spinning. And then I noticed that uh, it looked like there was a, like a drop of dew in the middle of one, and my attention went to that, and it, and it felt like peeking through a keyhole. And I saw a scene that was um, like I was on the ceiling of our kitchen, in the house I grew up in, and I was looking down on my mom's head and back from above, and standing next to her was a little toddler holding her skirt to, to, for balance. And I realized that that was me, and I was looking down from this strange vantage point on a scene from my life. And I was like, oh, this is what it must mean to have your life flash before your eyes. And so I looked into another one of those weird shapes, and it had the same effect. And I looked through that hole, and I saw myself when I was maybe three years old, and we'd just gotten our puppy molasses, and I was playing with the puppy. And then I looked in another one, and I was a year older. I was like maybe four or five, and one of my chores was to put the chickens back in the coop at night. And so it was, it was dusk, and it was that same vantage point, looking down at the top of my head, and me and molasses were herding the chickens into the coop. And I was like, oh, and I looked into another one, and it was a scene of a kid older than me. And he was wearing a yellow t-shirt and blue jeans and blue nylon sneakers and crossing a, a creek that looked very much like this creek but wasn't, and uh, stepped on a, a dry rock to cross, and the rock shifted, and his foot went in the water, and he kind of jumped the rest of the way across. And I thought, oh, that's bullshit. That's not me. That's, that's older than me. This, this isn't really my life flashing before my eyes. This is my brain getting cooked by electricity and just showing me what I thought I was supposed to see. And I was really disappointed and, and, and upset about that. And right then there was this strange click feeling and the power shut off. And my hand let go. And I was like, whoa, I'm not dead yet. Now, at this point, um, these black shapes that were still coming off the sun and still coming closer, there was just thousands and thousands and thousands of them now, and they were swirling around, covering up almost the entire sky. And I just had this intuition that as soon as I couldn't see any more of the real world and all I saw was these black shapes, then that means I would be really dead. And I thought, okay, I'm not getting electrocuted anymore. And I actually felt my heart beating again. And I was like, why am I still seeing the shape? I was like, oh yeah, I didn't take a breath yet. 
So I just sort of tipped my head up a little bit and I took a breath. And as I took the breath and like felt like pain just flooded back in and I realized it hadn't really hurt for a while there. It hurt right at first. And then there was that whole time I was looking at the picture that didn't really hurt. And now it hurt a lot. And I went back underwater and my right arm didn't work at all. And my face was kind of bumping on the rocks underwater and I couldn't get my wits about me. And I thought, this is really dumb. I'm going to drown now. Uh, but it, it got shallow quick and the current was taking me toward a shallower and I got my hand down and I managed to get some air. And then I like recovered a little bit and managed to crawl up under the sand. And I think I passed out for a little while and I was shivering and crying and, and finally I could get up. And I looked up at the top of the cliff and right there was my dad and he was coiling up the hose. He had just finished uh, cleaning out the pig pen. And um, I yelled up to him, dad. He was like, what? I said, I, I got shocked. I need to come up. He goes, did you finish cleaning the pump? <laughs> and I was like, oh. And he could tell because I hesitated that I hadn't finished yet. And he's like, oh, finish cleaning the pump and then you can come up. And I was like, oh, man, and my right hand, uh, my fingers were all puffy and, and kind of cooked looking, and my thumb was all puffy and cooked, and my right arm didn't work. But I was like, well, I was on the left-handed part now anyways. And then I was like, oh, the scrub brush. And I, and, I, and I started looking around for the scrub brush, and then I saw it like an eighth of a mile down the creek, just bobbing along on, on the creek. And I'm like, oh, there's no way I can catch that. It's, it's faster than I am at this point. And so for the first time ever, I deliberately disobeyed my father. And... Uh, Went back up the trail, and before I got to the gate, I snuck through the, the tall grass and waited till he wasn't visible, and then I climbed over the fence and snuck into the house and went straight to my mom. And uh, recovered. Uh, she never, I never went to the doctor or anything. Uh, my arm kind of feeling came back over the next couple of days, and I could use it again. Wrapped up my hand with bandages and stuff and put some sunburn cream on it. Um, and then a couple of years later, I must have been about 13, we were at the next town over, Boonville, visiting uh, our friends, and I was down in the creek playing with the kids, and I'm crossing the creek, and the, the rock shifts, my foot goes in the water, and I, and I jump across, and I look down, and I'm wearing those bright blue nylon sneakers and blue jeans and a yellow t-shirt, and I realized, oh, that was the last scene I saw that pissed me off so much. That was my life flashing before my eyes. And now up to that point, I'd been raised pretty fundamentalist Christian, which is weird for a hippie kid. My parents decided to be born-again Christians. And uh, I had actually gone to a Christian elementary school, and now I was back into junior high school and public junior high and sort of learning the other kind of science, which tells you evolution is true as opposed to how to refute evolutionists, which was the first part of my education. But when I realized that I had actually seen the future and, and that was possible, um, it meant that there was something fundamentally missing in everything I'd learned so far, and nobody really knew what the truth was. And I realized that the only truth that I knew was real was that there was a part of me that was watching over me and somehow existed outside of time. The end. Thank you. My name is Abraham Norfleet. <laughs> Abraham Norfleet. Abraham is a writer, multidisciplinary artist, and comedian. Back when he was still trying to be respectable, he worked as a commercial artist in advertising, often working triple shifts, putting the sparkle on a diamond or the steam on a steak, under looming deadlines and immense pressure, just to earn a, quote, high salary. 
Now he performs internationally and is a regular on the award-winning web series Goodstein. Okay, before we continue with today's episode, I am so excited to share that we have announced our lineup for our annual fundraiser, the Proton Prom, which is on June 1st. I'd like to take a moment here just to tell you about our storytellers for this event. First, we have comedian Aparna Nanchurla. You may have seen her on Comedy Central's Corporate or in Netflix's BoJack Horseman. She was named one of the 50 funniest people right now by Rolling Stone, and I agree. Next, we have anthropologist, primatologist, and comedian Natalia Reagan. She's a comedy writer and correspondent on Neil deGrasse Tyson's Star Talk, and you may have seen her on Discovery Channel or Nat Geo as an animal expert. And then we have Nicholas St. Floor. He's a science journalist whose work you may have read in STAT or the New York Times. He won the 2021 Everett Clark Seth Payne Award for Young Science Journalists. And finally, famed mathematician Ken Ono, who has published over 200 research articles in number theory and has received many awards for his research, including a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Packard Fellowship, and a Sloan Fellowship. I'm freaking out a little bit about this amazing lineup. To be honest, I'm so excited for these folks to share their stories with you. If you're as excited as I am, please go to storyclutter.org and get your tickets today. If you can't make it to Brooklyn for the big night, we're also going to start selling virtual tickets on May 15th. Check out storyclutter.org slash shows to get information about our other upcoming shows in places like New York, D.C., St. Louis, L.A., Chicago, and Toronto. We're also continuing to offer online storytelling workshops for individuals as well as private groups. You can find out more at storyclutter.org slash education. And finally, if you're a fan of this podcast, if you, like us, believe in the power these stories have to reveal the humanity behind science, to change our understanding of how science happens and who it belongs to, please consider donating to the Story Collider at storyclutter.org slash donate. We're so grateful to everyone who helps make our work possible. Our second story today is from Hannah Shank. It was recorded last March at one of our live stream shows at The Tank in New York City. The theme that night was Brainstorm. I used to be the kind of person who said things like, I just need to unplug. I had all of the books uh, on how to slow down and all of the meditation apps, and I would go to a yoga retreat, and I would be the person standing in my room at the yoga retreat, checking my email and just sending one last email and one more phone call before racing down the hall so I could relax. In uh, summer 2019, we were in Vermont getting ready for some relaxing of that style uh, because it was about to be August and it was about to be vacation and we'd rented a house in Vermont for the month. Uh, but before we could get to all of that relaxing, we first had to pick my daughter up from sleepaway camp. So we spent the morning watching 10-year-old girls cantering and posting and doing horse-related activities. And then we pack up the bag and uh, throw it in the car. And we have a conversation about where we want to go for lunch. Do we want to go to the diner or to the burger place? And I don't remember which one we chose because the next thing that I know, 
I am being woken up repeatedly by doctors who insist on telling me this story that I'm sure is wrong. They wake me up and they say, you are in a car accident and you are in Dartmouth-Hitchcock Hospital in Hanover, New Hampshire. Wrong. I started the day in Vermont. If I crossed a river to a different state, wouldn't I know it? And then they say, you were, uh, there was a motorcycle that was on the road, a pickup truck to, tried to pass it, and it hit you head on at 70 miles an hour. They didn't see you coming. They were up, going up a hill. Um, and your husband has broken his leg. Your son's collarbone is shattered. Your daughter has damage to her lower intestine from the seatbelt, and she's had surgery. She also has spinal fractures. And they tell me, I've also had surgery. So I lift up my hospital gown, and I see this angry red line and these industrial-sized staples running down my torso, so I know they're right. And then they say, and you got your bell rung. This is the phrase that they use to tell me that my brain slammed against the side of my skull and bled for a while. And the bleeding has stopped, but I have what's called traumatic brain injury. And I'm acutely aware in the hospital that I have absolutely no idea what's happening. I can't keep together a linear narrative about the accident. I keep asking what happened and when did that happen and who did what and what was with the motorcycle and there was a pickup truck and I don't understand what happened. And my husband is telling me for like the thousandth time who has what injuries and I can't keep any of the injuries straight. I can't remember what happened to our son and who has a broken collarbone. I have no idea what's happening. My brain feels sluggish and walled off and like I can't access anything before the accident. So eventually we get discharged and we are in the Airbnb in Vermont having what was supposed to be a vacation and now is something entirely different. And my husband is cooking dinner and he says to me, will you hand me the Parmesan? So I open the fridge, and I look, and I look, and I shrug, and I say to him, I can't find the Parmesan, and I close the fridge. And my son opens the fridge, and he pulls out a block of Parmesan, and he hands it to my husband. Sometimes you just can't find the Parmesan? Turns out, no. Um, when I roll into occupational therapy a bit later, um, we do a test that confirms that I have trouble scanning uh, a field for visual objects. Um, and she says, we're gonna work on it. So I'm like, okay, that's good, we're gonna work on it. Um, and she pulls out a deck of cards and says, we're gonna play a game. I'm like, who play a game, great. Uh, so she says, she's, the game is, she's gonna turn over one card and then she's gonna turn over another card. And I have to say the, color and the um, suit and the number of the previous card. I hate this game. I am so bad at this game. I want to physically reach into my skull and remove my brain and throw it against the wall. I am furious. 
I will never play this game again as long as I live. When we get back to New York, I notice that my brain is different. It used to race all the time, making plans and skipping from whether an article I want to research to a project I want to do at work to whether my kids are happy and in the right after school programs to like, where are we going for MLK weekend? And now it does none of that. It's really quiet, which I find highly suspicious, but also kind of soothing. So when we get back to New York, I'm taking the subway to a lot of doctor's appointments. There are endless doctor's appointments for everybody in the family. And I notice that when I get on the subway, I just sit. I don't take out my phone. I don't take out a book. I don't listen to music. I just sit on the subway and I'm just a person riding the subway. I welcome the quiet, but I'm not so sure. So I realize after a while, we start trying to get back into our lives and it becomes clear that the biggest problem for me is going to be stamina. I am tired a lot and I get tired out easy. I get brain tired, which is kind of a different thing than being physically tired. Um, we decide we're gonna take a staycation, it's December. And we're, we decide we'll take the kids to the Empire State Building. They're lifelong New Yorkers, so obviously they've never been. So we get tickets and the day comes and I'm just too tired. I, I just can't do it. Um, so instead I spend the day researching and finding a doctor, finding specialists who, um, with expertise in traumatic brain injury and fatigue. And I find a guy on the Upper East Side and I make an appointment, I go see him. And I say to him, Will I ever be able to have the life that I thought I was going to have? I work at a think tank. Um, I work really closely with people who are going to go into the White House or into the administration or the federal, federal government. And I know that's not a thing that I'm going to do right now, but I kind of always thought that would be a thing I would do down the road, maybe. Like, is that even an option for me? And he says, well, look, you have the brain that you have um, and you're going to have to learn to live with it. But, and then he tells me this story about a patient of his who is a high-powered, fancy lawyer at some high-powered, fancy law place, and she has traumatic brain injury, and she just takes a nap under her desk every day, and she's fine. <laughs> right? I mean, so I picture this woman in her, like, fancy designer lawyer suit curling up on the floor of the office under her desk with like the paper shavings and like cheese it dust. And I just know in that moment that that is not the life that I want to have. So after that appointment, I, I think about what he said about living with the brain that I have and I start to make some changes. And the first thing that I do is I stop multitasking. Did you know that you can just listen to the radio? Like that is an activity unto itself. <laughs> I used to listen to the radio while like doing dishes and the crossword puzzle and knitting a sweater and 
you don't have to do any of that. Like, you can just listen to the radio. So I, I experiment with taking a walk in Prospect Park near where we live. Um, and I walk without headphones. Total silence. I am, I'm just in the park and I see the kids playing flag football and I listening to the sound of footfall and heavy breathing as runners are passing me on the park loop. And I smell the moldering leaves under the wet winter snow. And it's kind of amazing. So I try the new me out um, at this book launch event. I have a bunch of friends who are going to a book launch. And so a book launch has two parts to it. Um, there's always like the book talk part. And then there's the drinking and socializing part. And I say to my friends, I know that I'm going to have energy for the book talk part. Um, and I am not going to have energy for the drinking and socializing part. So I'm going to leave before that. And it's entirely possible that I, I never had the energy for the drinking and socializing part. Like as an introvert, it's not exactly my deal. Um, but now I have this really great excuse. So the book launch comes and um, I do the, the uh, reading part and then the drinking part and socializing part comes and I'm like, okay, gotta go, you know, get the brain thing, see you later. Um, and everyone's like, bye, good for you, taking care of yourself. Um, and the next day I get up and I have energy. And this is kind of a revelation. I realize that um, I don't have a choice as to how much energy I have every day, but I have a choice as to what I spend it on. And so I start cutting things out left and right. I start saying no to work stuff. I start turning down projects. I even um, start ending, I even end some relationships that are just too draining. Um, and I become this brain energy conservation fanatic. I have also learned that a part of conserving the brain energy is sitting with the silence and welcoming it. So in uh, this last summer, we bought a house in Maine. We couldn't go back to Vermont for obvious reasons, um, but we like nature and we wanted to still have some. Um, and buying the house in Maine was kind of a way of putting a stake in the ground and saying, this is the kind of life I want to live. I want to live a life that centers my health and my family and nature instead of work, work, and work. And I'm not always great at the energy conservation. Sometimes I slip up and I do too much and then I pay the price the next day or the next week or sometimes even the next month. I'm still learning. Um, but I have learned that part of conserving my brain energy means that when I say, I just need to unplug, I really have to listen to myself. I really have to do it. And what that looks like for me is doing zero to one things at a time and sitting in the silence and welcoming it. And I have come to a point where I relish it. 
I relish the silence because I know that it means I'll have energy to get up and do it all again tomorrow. That was Hannah Shank. Hannah is an author, designer, and technologist. She's a senior advisor for public interest technology at New America, a think tank in Washington, D.C., where she works to improve how government serves the American people via technology and human-centered design. In addition to her research and design work, she's the author of three nonfiction books and a Kindle single. Her most recent book, Power to the Public, received praise from President Obama, who called it worth a read for anyone who cares about making change happen. Hannah lives in Brooklyn with her husband and two children, where she hopes to write more books that President Obama enjoys. The Story Collider is so grateful to Abraham and Hannah for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by me, Erin Barker, Executive Director and Co-Founder of The Story Collider, with help from Managing Producer Misha Gajewski, Education Director Nissa Greenberg, and Senior Podcast Editor Jen Chen. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including Managing Director Amory Lonsdale, Science Advisory Fellow Edith Gonzalez, Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, and Marketing Manager Nikisha Roberts-Washington, without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode were from shows produced by Paula Croxon and Tracy Rowland, and by Paula Croxon and Fola Oluzanya, respectively. Our theme music is by Ghost. Next week, we'll be back with incredibly charming stories about fitting in in science from scientists Heather Galindo and Rob Ulrich. For now, thanks for listening. Thank you.